Welcome to Life's Pivots and Potholes. Each podcast is a fun, deep dive into how other people from varying occupations, age groups, and countries navigated their life decisions. Join us as we discuss the unexpected benefits, funny stories, and difficulties faced, which all led to the next stage of life. My name is Robin, and I'm your host for Pivots and Potholes. I'll be talking with people from the music industry, writers, data analysts, small business owners, and many, many more professions. They will tell you the story of how they flipped the script or life flipped the script on their life, how those pivots took them to the next level. The pivots and potholes others experience can offer you insight on how to navigate your tricky situations. Join us as we discuss the unexpected benefits, funny stories, and difficulties faced which all led to a new chapter of life. Dan Dubelman is my first guest, and he will take us on a wild ride through his life experiences as a four-year-old actor, playing with Willie Nelson at Farm Aid, and then becoming a luthier. By the way, the music you've been hearing is Dan's, and the links can be found in the podcast comments section below. At five years old, you actually kicked off your career. That's right. Yeah, um, it's funny because like I remember that day very clearly, but before the day, the controversy in the family, which I didn't know about because I was five years old, was basically the director saw me and he wrote the commercial for me. So like it was it was kind of precast and because my father worked for him, he had no choice really, you know. So my parents weren't stage parents by any means. Like that's a good thing in a lot of ways, but also it, it means that it was really unusual because I wasn't going on auditions or anything like that. I didn't have aspirations to be an actor. I was just, boom, I was acting with Jack Guilford five minutes later. <clears throat> and I remember all that stuff. There was a lot of actual acting because he gave me, he would do stuff being a method actor, he knew how to work with kids. You know, he had been in the theater for years and worked with kids. So he'd be like, you know, my ear, I'm a little deaf in this ear, so lean in to speak to me, you know? Mm -hmm. He had little tricks that, you know, uh, so that was really helpful. And uh, it was just, it was uh, it was interesting because it was like adult work and it was, you know, it was a clearly a moment that took you out of regular childhood into something where the pressure was on, you know? What was that like when you like got back to school and the Cracker Jack ad hit? Because Cracker Jacks were huge back then. Yeah, and the commercial was on TV constantly in an era before anybody was on TV. So, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, that's all I know. It, like other friends of mine that were successful musicians and actors as kids, I don't really know what the other option w is because that's all I really did know. You know what I mean? Yeah. But definitely everybody, people would ask me for my autograph that are like my friends and like, you know, I couldn't, I would have to print it, of course, because I didn't know how to write. <laughs> but it wasn't just that. It was just like, obviously, there's a lot of, well, you don't know as a kid, is a lot of people like you for that reason. And also a lot of people hate you for that reason. But I, I was kind of unaware of a lot of things. But later on, I was 
comes up, but it was the di the dynamics are all that I knew at the time. It seemed like people were friendly to me, but maybe obviously in retrospect, some people were friendly because I was the kid on TV. Yeah. And some people were probably jealous and hated that. I know that later on I'd meet people in life that thought that I was there with their families. Like it's hard to distinguish the reality. So like a friend of mine or something would start crying, you know, when they saw the commercial and they'd say, my dad, you know, my dad and I used to watch that. And he'd start wow. crying and they think I was there with them, which is kind of funny because we do think that about the people we see on, I mean, you have to remember back to three networks, but so everybody saw me, you know, so I, what I've always said about it is it's like, like today when we see, I'm not preaching, but I'm just saying that now that there's more like provocative stuff, it focuses a lot of a kind of attention on you. So being a cute kid focuses a kind of attention on you. That's like psychic energy in the world, you mm. know? And yeah. I think that's maybe the strangest thing, like in some ways. And even if it, some people aren't good about it going away either. I was okay about it because I was always had that in the back of my mind. I, I think it another like when I was a kid, I think I had naturally a joyful personality. And then I took on almost that more Holden Caulfield, James Dean type of attitude because everything's a failure after that, to tell you the truth. Like, what are you going to do, the eight-year-old play, you know? And if your parents aren't taking you for auditions, like, I said to my father, you know, I think I need a manager. And he's like, I'm your manager. And it's like, so there was no, like, later on, I'd meet people and they'd be like, oh, you know, I could have gotten you. This is, of course, I would have been dead if I pursued that line, you know? Like, it was a good protective th I've had this happen a bunch of times in my life. So many times, actually, I forget some, some of them, you know, sitting with a record executive in some weird situation that nothing good could have come out of these deals anyway if they had worked out. And uh, this was another one of those things. Like, if I went from five years old to then doing TV at seven or eight, and then something, by then, you know, I, I don't think I'd be alive. I really don't. It was the 70s, you know? And that, like I said, that happened several times, you know. One time well, I, I made good music once when I was like, I made, I recorded some music with Jerry Jamat, who's a very famous bass player, when I was like 15 years old. And we, we made the record. I mean, we didn't make the records, but we did the recordings. So it's like, it would have been easy in those days to, to print up 45s. But again, I'm, I, in retrospect, I was always glad about how things worked out when I look back on it, because... I didn't have the emotional, uh, spiritual, or psychic capabilities and maturity to handle the type of energy that gets thrown at you. You said that like when you picked up a guitar at 13, but then you went on to college for an acting career. Was there well, tension there? Or? No, I mean, I, it wasn't really acting. Like what happened was I... By 13, I picked up the guitar, and the thing is that drew me was the was the blues, and I guess it, it's the blues that, you know, like, maybe it's because I had the blues after that, you know, it's like weird ups and downs and dynamics, but I, I started to just play, I was really just playing for, for fun, I mean, I dreamed about playing professionally, but there were so many good people, players, I didn't see it, and, um, like, acting I was always good at, and so, like, I didn't act in plays in high school at all. I wasn't, I didn't do any of that stuff. Cause it's like, it seemed like working with kids. It just, I just didn't understand it. Like it just, that didn't seem like acting to even college. It didn't seem like acting because 
you know, everybody's 18 to 21, and that's like a weird way to do your acting, you know? So, like, it never made sense to me. I did do some shows there that I directed at Cornell, but, like, and I've acted in a show at, at Hopkins that Edward Albee directed because Edward Albee was directing. So I was like, all right, I'm down, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, like, and I have anecdotal stories about that. But the, the thing about, about, about Cornell was that, you know, you're an arts and science major. I could pick biology or whatever. I was scared, so I picked theater arts because I thought that's where I had an advantage that I, you know, I could, like, act if worse comes to worse and be you know it had a reputation because christopher reeve went there and like i but it, it turned out that that was more mythology than the reality of cornell but the thing is when i went to cornell and it's funny i was just talking to some cornell people i quickly kind of switched over to english because i also thought i'd be doing like playwriting but they had a few good teachers but uh it wasn't like you had the breadth of great professors that they had in the english department and you would have been forced to take so many classes in like film history or mm. stuff like that with one guy. Like to, it seemed like such a waste of a great Cornell education to just study film history. Like that just, so I went over to English and the, the big challenge in English was you have to be able to take literature in a foreign language, which requires you knowing a foreign language. <laughs> so, uh, Having never paid attention and, you know, we're like, we had Spanish class, but I didn't, I started over because they had a good French department, but I mean, it was really hard to learn the French well enough to take the classes of literature in French. That was one of the hardest things about being an English major at Cornell was, it turned out actually, once you got to a little bit of understanding of the language, they didn't require that much speaking and it turns out that reading French is a little easier and some of the sections are in English. So it wasn't that hard to take literature in the language. I mean, I don't want to emphasize it too much, but it was just that it was clear at Cornell that they had these, like, there was a big difference between certain departments, you know? Can you still read in French? Can you still read French? I mean, I, I think it would come back to me, but no. I mean, the thing <laughs> is... <laughs> I, it's weird, too, because it's come up with a couple of things that I didn't think I could do. But then I think being an actor every now and then you can just jump into it if you really are pushed. Mm -hmm. So it was like another weird thing. But it looks like English in some ways. Like they'll be like, um, what's it? Souvenir. I mean, it's something it looks like that. And that's memory, I think. I mean, I could be wrong. <laughs> I could say, but. But it was like that, like the words kind of looked like what they're supposed to mean. In fact, it seemed even, it actually seemed better. So if it's simple French, it's almost, it's richer. And a lot of words rhyme naturally. So as a songwriter, you're like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> you <know. laughs> now, were you writing songs back then? Oh yeah, I've been writing songs since I was four, which oh. like was, uh, yeah, yeah. Cause I, I met this guy, I worked on a project with this guy from the uh, Philharmonic and he, he was like, how long have you been composing music? And I was like, oh, I don't compose music. I just write songs. And he's like, oh, that's called composing music. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> and then he was, I said, because I wrote my first song at four. And he's like, oh, he's like, you're Mozart. Like, and then it's funny because when I met Patty, she was like, her first song, she said she wrote at three. I never met anybody who wrote a song earlier than me before her. Wow. Um, and who's Patty? It's a good song. Patty Rothberg, she's a you know legendary artist. She sold like a million records. We collaborate sometimes in the Jersey Beatles. 
I was going to say the Jersey Beatles. You guys are fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, it's such a fun project. Like, we keep getting, like, we're, it's funny because we, the, the project's ahead of what distribution outlet we can use. So we're trying to figure out how to translate it best because, like, the two of us can get together and, like, it's almost like, I mean, it's kind of like a spinal tap thing, you know? <laughs> you know, we'll be talking about something, you know? It's it's fun because we can really make fun of all the music stuff, especially in the context of the Beatles, you know? Mm. Like, I forgot, we had some, you know, you know, I'll, I'll have good routines about little little things about, you know, the uh, the, the timbre or whatever, you know, making <laughs> jokes about it. And, and it's awful, or we have both have awful British accents. That's so true. It is <laughs> awful. Yeah, but it just makes it more fun. It You're does. I think so. <laughs> Actually, the big thing is that we got the coats now. We got the Sergeant Pepper coats, <laughs> and that you know that just says it right there. But uh, we have a little Jersey, so every now and then we switch from Beatles accent to like Jersey guy. Uh, but Patty's great, and we we collaborate on some stuff, but. Um, Okay, well, now, before you, so music seems to have been kind of a, a thread through your whole life, but then yeah. you kind of, you pivoted and did some, you know, digital entertainment, you know, certainly we go back to that. I mean, what happened was I, I, I played music until, like, I didn't know anything about the music business. There's certain things you need to know about the culture of the music business, and I didn't know it, so, like, I kind of like I said before, I messed up in a way that was probably good for me. So by the time I messed up enough, uh, I was like playing crappier gigs in New York. And uh, my sister said, hey, there's a great opportunity to work on the internet. So I told everybody, I'm done with music. I retired. You know, I'm here to be a corporate guy. And uh, like they were so desperate that I got hired. That's really what happened because like they couldn't hire people. Like, nobody needed that job. Like, you'd say, well, I'm working at Fox, and that's prestigious. And they'd say, hey, I can get double that working over here, you know? And that's a good point. Like, prestigious is one thing. Double is another, you know? <laughs> so, so, like, you know, there were, there were jobs to be had. And, like, I was kind of old at, like, 32 two maybe 30 something like that yeah and i was kind of old for the you know everybody else was really young and um like i ended up getting in like into that and i'm coming up with on the wave so i it really went well for a while because i was like they i didn't know what the word marketing meant but i had been doing all this stuff for years with bands it was easy for me to do it you know i understood like so many aspects of what they were falling apart on because I, unlike everybody else, I had real world experience about how do you, we did tours in, in vans back then. We'd get in the van and we'd like, I'd have to talk to the venue and get us a gig. And like, I mean, we did these things that were like, now they're legendary, but like, you know, it's kind of like what, but at the time when you're doing the legendary stuff, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's a little painful. Um, so this was it was kind of easy i was like oh this is relatively easy you mean i get paid whether i collect the money or not you know and like uh you know you had they would ask you to do things that were much easier to do than things i've been doing on my own so it was really not a problem um to transition into it but i started to get into 
the band thing again and ended up at the Roxy. And at first it was like kind of a joke to me. I was like, oh, this is great. I'm playing the Roxy for fun, you know? <laughs> and I'd be, oh, I start opening for people. And then all of a sudden producers would come and they'd go, hey, I think you have something if you take it seriously. Next thing I know, we're taking it seriously. And that hurt my executive career because the second I went back into music was the second that my executive career was over again and then for good, you know? Do you regret that? Mm, well, it's the same thing, you know? I end up dead that the way up the ladder, so. <laughs> Strapped in a cubicle. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, I think what happens is this. There's only so many jobs as you go up, so you're competing with people. Of course, the competition, it's not that they're good. It's just that they're political. And so I wasn't real good at the politics, but I was a real hotshot in that I could do things with the people that I knew. We could do things and you know, a third of the time, twi two times more efficiently. So we always had that hotshot thing. But to be a hotshot in LA, you have to put the act on. And like, I couldn't really back that up when I got off the road. You know, if I'd rolled into town in a Ferrari, you know, with the, in the mansion house, I would have been able to maintain that executive thing. So it was, it was, it was a little rough timing. And then I got divorced, which is also not the not the greatest thing to do for business-wise, too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know that one. And divorce, like, has a punch that is quite unexpected. Like, I hate to say this, also, like, in L.A., if the next thing you know, you're remarried to somebody younger, better looking, with more money, then all of a sudden, again, you're back in that game, you know? Yep. Oh, but, yeah. You know, it's... It is what it is. I mean, I, so, um, it's like, you have to be who you are, of course. Like I was never that person. So it never occurred to me, but looking back on it, you can see, you know, what the, uh, what's going on. I, yeah, no, I don't really have any regrets about that. It's just that like, there were certain things that I, I wanted to do that never got done. And like, they still haven't been done. I like understood I was working in sports and community and like there was a, it's such an opportunity. Like there is nothing. These people make the huge mistake of thinking that what they're doing with sports, like the, and the ESPNs and Fox and they just, they're missing the community aspect of it, but they, they, they're and, and Google and all the Facebooks, they've missed it. And so, you know, it comes up in other ways, but, it's just funny as a sports fan, I end up reading the comments from the people. That's what I was trying to say. I don't, you know, like, like here's a great example. Newsday and Daily News, except for the New York Post, have made, I think Post 2 maybe, they made it so you have to sign something or you want to subscribe. It's like, why would I do that? Because there's a less good writer that writes for free. So I'm going to read the less good guy and I'm going to hope that, you know, he's getting a better audience. Maybe he'll get better. And it's the same information, roughly. It's just like the publicity of the day. It's like the Russian government. They just, whatever they release from sports teams, you know, they're the PR department, you know. But it's like, whatever. It's fun to read. It's an escapism. But like, why would I? They, they trained me. They were so clever that they were like, aha, now for only one cent you can subscribe. All you have to do is X, Y, and Z. Or 
I could just stop going to your site. They're like, oh, we'll limit you to three times per month. It's like, okay, well, I'll just stop using you entirely. So it didn't really, it seems to me like that's not a, a good plan. Uh, I had a different plan to incentivize the audience so that like it was working the other way, that they actually you might even get paid to participate because your participation, the truth is we're creating content for guys like Facebook and we're not getting paid for it. We're the slaves in the in the free thing, creating content to, for them for free. But what if they said, look, we'll give you something. What can they give you? Well, they can make deals. They can make deals. They have the ability to get sponsorship to make deals. I mean, they could get you a free Coca-Cola. It doesn't matter to me. I would never drink that, but somebody would. Whatever, they could co sponsor with different things and do what they wanted to do and maybe even help causes there's clever ways that they could do co-promotions and do stuff that was good for the community and incentivize people to do the right thing but they're like they're not even close to thinking about these things that's right and and it's it's that same right if they're not selling a product the product is you right 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 <laughs> so Okay, so then you went back into music, right? I Yeah, well, as soon as I, uh, well, I mean, I was always in bands, like in college, grad school. And as soon as I was done with grad school, I, I was like playing um, with Jerry Jamont and Bernard Purdy in New York City. And uh, uh, that evolved because I'd been playing with Jerry since I was a kid. And I moved back to New York and I was, he's like, we should do a gig. And I was like, sure. And he's like, uh, uh Call uh, Paul Colby at the bitter end and, uh, you know, tell him it's Purdy and, and me are playing with you. And so, like, when I played, I played uh, that summer, I guess, the 88. And then uh, there's some pictures of it. And uh, I never met Purdy before. Um, and, like, I started to play, like, I was playing like a boogie, you know. Uh, yeah. If I have a guitar handy. I was going to say, get, get one of those guitars back there. Um, yeah, so like I was playing this thing and it starts with just a guitar part. And then Purdy kicks in and like, you know, because I was playing, I come in with the guitar first and he goes, do, 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 do. I turned around and I was like, oh my God. Because it was the music he had played on all those Aretha records and everything. But now my band sounded like that. So I came in like that. I was like... Oh my God, lost my mind completely, you know? And um, and there were, everybody was there, like uh, Phoebe Snow and the Spin Doctors, the Blues Travel, tons of people came to see me. I mean, I don't think they liked it, actually. They liked Purdy and Jamat, but like I kind of have that like Lou Reed, push talky style of singing, and I don't know if that's they liked it at all. Nobody like was like, Clamoring afterwards, but there were a lot of famous people there. Who is this guy playing with Purdy and Jamont? <laughs> was that intimidating? Know. Looking out at an audience where you're recognizing all the faces? Well, for one thing, I have poor I have poor facial recognition. So I can't really tell people. And the other thing is that like well the blues travel and spin doctors, they were just right they were just the guys that hung out. Like they were in the scene. They weren't like famous at by they weren't No, I didn't really care. 
I mean, I remember being like for a second having a little nervousness right before about remembering lyrics because I've got a ton of lyrics in some of the songs, you know. Other than that, like, no, I mean, I'd been playing a lot in college and uh, grad school and I was just, uh, it was just, it, once you hit those grooves with those good musicians like that, it felt so good. I wasn't really uh, worried about them. You don't get stage fright. No, I get the other thing. Getting off the stage is a problem. <laughs> it sounds like a no problem, but it's really bad kind of sometimes because it's like, I can't come down. Like, I'm like, I used to play the Viper Room in LA. Like, it would be, they gave me always like these awful slots, like one in the morning on a Tuesday night and it closes at two. So I'd be playing the, I, I, the room was empty and I'd start playing and it was like packed. I don't even know where people came from. Like, it seemed like a lot of Europeans would come in there and all this stuff. And like, all of a sudden it was packed and was a great gig. And I lived really close to the Viper Room. So we'd finish the gig, the club was closed and I'd go home. I'd be sitting at the table by myself, like at by 2.15, you know, trying to like, what are you gonna do? Like open a box of cereal or, you know, <laughs> go watch some TV. There's not really that much to do, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. Didn't you move to Nashville for a while? Yeah. Well, we spent, when I was, the the band with, with my ex-wife, Betty Dillon, we ended up on the road for two years living in the motorhome full time. And at some point we ended up, like, we ended up in Bloomington and Indiana. And then we realized, our, we had a manager at the time who was like, we're so close to Nashville, you guys might as well just go there. It's a better place to be. So we went to Nashville. Um, we, we parked the RV, like, 40 minutes out of town or something so it was and we started we lived there for like a year we were having a great time we were living in the mountains and then we drive into town and, and nashville's kind of was always fun i mean and they're great musicians like i really love the musicians in nashville they're so talented like everybody can play anything it's not just country music it's uh and so much good record it's just professional like what happens is there's billions of dollars in the music industry in nashville so it's like like New York and LA, except Nashville's a lot smaller. So there's it's just like Austin doesn't have that billions of dollars infusion. So it's a cool city. Seattle's a cool city, but Nashville's a center, a real center, and it's it's vibrant, you know, because there's an infusion of money, real money, you know, and songwriting and great songwriters there. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so we ended up so close to Nashville that, and at that in that time in the market, it, like they we would like we went to look for houses, and they were like just for fun we went. But then they were like, hey, you know, you can buy one. We're like, but we have no money, and they're like, doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> it was. It was like that. They were like, in fact, I think they were like, we'll give you some money back. They're like, we can make the house worth this amount, you know, it's, it was like crazy deals were going on, you know? Yeah. I was like, can I take 10 of them then, you know? <laughs> but we ended up buying a really cool house in East Nashville, which is like the hipster part of Nashville. It was really fun and it was during the, I mean, the truth is they're gentrifying, but that was it, like, the good part of it is like, there were a lot of cool things happening. You know, the bad part is like, yeah, you're pushing people around socially because you're offering so much money for the homes. But um, anyway, it was a really fun time. We had a great time. And also, we used to play Kentucky a lot. For some reason, we did really well in Lexington. So we used to go to Lexington like once a month for the for play the weekend. We'd play, 
we were like the Beatles at the Cavern Club. We used to play like four or five hours a night, Friday and Saturday night. Like I remember, well, the first thing we do is start with the, our best 10 songs because we're going to play our best 10 songs also at the end of the night. Because anybody who's a big enough fan to stay from the beginning to the end gets to hear those songs twice, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like there was, there's no place where there's more drinking than Kentucky. I'm not a drinker. There used to be a row, because I used to make jokes because we're trying to sell drinks as a band. So you're like, you know, I'm talking about the brown the brown liquid, you know? And they liked that. I was like talking about the brown liquid. And all of a sudden there'd be like 10 shots lined up for me. You know? <laughs> At the end of the night, the, bar, the, the, the lady that owned the bar, she was like, let's have a drink. And she pours a glass of vodka like, you know, that's up to the top of this glass, you know, that's a shot, you know, in Kentucky. <laughs> Let me have a shot of, uh, wait a minute now, you know. Uh, but, well, and you guys played some big venues too, right? We're, yeah, we played Farmate. That was the biggest, but we played a lot of, like we did, we played big theaters and festival. Like it was really fun. Some of the the county fair in, in Wyoming, 10 sleep. That was really fun. We played some festivals. We played, we played some hard rock festival once as an acoustic duo. That was really fun with filter and mushroom head and uh seven dust Leon Russell. Like, God, it's like, they don't come farm. Aid was with Willie Nelson and Neil Young and Dave Matthews. Uh, it's hard like drawing a blank on all the people we opened for, but they were like, it's a good group of people. <laughs> they were yeah, the well, Blasters, yeah. <laughs> uh, Susie Boggess. Um, God, it's hard to remember them, but they, I should remember them. I mean, I've also opened with my band for some good people too, like uh, Luther Guitar Jr. Johnson. And what's his name? Uh, when I played uh, with uh, Joe Bonamassa in my band when I was... Uh, coming up he was like a little kid and we played at the lone star together but uh like when i played the lone star one night we played like a couple nights later the band was playing when i first played there my la you know it was towards the end of the run but it was just like i mean it was crazy to be like going from a fan to be like sitting there with guys that you admire i, I got to play with kenny arnoff uh he's a great drummer famous drummer from melican's band but um, and now he's played with everybody you know and like they're just uh, so Bernard Purdy, I played with him so much, and Jerry Jermont, and S Steve Holly from Wings, and this guy Dan Hickey's a great just so many great musicians. Carol Dan Kay. Hickey, yeah, um, he's so great. What was he's, the band he was in? They might be Giants. Yeah, and he was also with Cindy Lauper and uh, Joe Jackson, and he's he's one of those like like amazing. I mean, you know, you can't really. It's one thing you learn from Miles Davis and those guys is if you work with the greatest musicians, you know, that's the music that's being played. You kind of can't go wrong. You know, they're playing. <laughs> I can walk off the stage and what they do is amazing, you know. But uh, but Dan is like a great musician because he is the he's one of those guys that's such a strong personality. He can like uh, really like it changes things, you know, he. Mm. You know, you feel the jolt of energy when he hits, you know? Yeah, yeah, I believe that. So, so Dan, didn't, okay, so didn't you then 
you know, the music keeps going on and then you become a physical therapist or? Well, like there was no, I ended up like after uh, the, we didn't intend to break up Betty Dillon, but once I got divorced, there was really no Betty Dillon essentially. And so like I ended up moving back East and uh, like just to make a living, I was trying to get any job I could get. So like I was working out in the gym and uh, they saw there was a sign for a receptionist and I said like, do you need a receptionist? And the lady was like, you look more like a trainer. And I was like, oh, I, sure. And she was like, here, here's the name of a couple organizations. Go get the certificate and I'll hire you. So uh, I went and got the certificate. And when I went back there, she was gone. But I got a job at the JCC, um, which was like, I mean, you know, um, i trying to think if I was, I think I was already... If I wasn't 50, I was 49. Like, I was old to be a trainer. And I'm just starting out there, you know. But it was really, it was great because, for one thing, it was almost like community service work that you're helping people. And I got good at it. Like, what happened was, what I knew how to do was build muscle initially. And that's what got me, you know, the work. Because they saw, well, you look like you're, you're fit. And I, I never worked out with weights until my 40s. But what, uh, what happened was... I started to realize working with people that like it didn't make sense to just work every muscle as hard as you can and then get them as strong because that had to create an imbalance. How would that not create an imbalance? You know, it's just it didn't make sense mathematically. And then I, I started I, I stopped working at the JCC and I started working at the city and it was a higher level just working with better people at a higher level. And they one job they started to bring in experts to train us and I became a melt method uh, hand and foot instructor. I got higher level. I would ask the guys, why are you doing this simple movement? Shoulder retraction. Why are you dissociating your wrist from your elbow? What are you doing? And it turns out all the top athletes were doing little moves because what are you practicing? Well, if I've got to take a step every day and my foot is externally rotating, I have to practice just being straight and developing muscles in the stomach to support that kind of biomechanics. So I started to get to where it was an art and then it feels like a gift because I've been, there's so many people that tell me, you know, I've helped them or like they, old. I work with a lot of seniors and so like prevented injuries or people that couldn't, really couldn't walk and they can't, I don't tell them, I'm not there to like, I don't fix anything, I just address things. But, but if they can be addressed, the only way I can address them is through biomechanics. So I try to help you improve the biomechanics and, and like this lady today called me up and she goes, is there ever going to be no pain? And I was like, we all want to feel like we're 20, but the answer is no. But if you can have less pain than you have now, then that's good. If it moves in the direction of a little bit less pain, then it's livable. And that's without doing surgeries and things like that, obviously, you know. Right. So it's like there's a bunion treatment. This lady in my class was going to get the bunion surgery and we did this treatment which is from the mel method you can look it up online or I, you know i'm happy to show it to you but it takes about 30 seconds and she cancels her surgery wow i mean and like you know i it's just that so in her mind i'm like <laughs> you know it's <laughs> funny too because i'm like no no i only know how to use you i just basically you put a rubber band on your toes and pull them apart i know how to use a rubber band i'm not a great healer <laughs> you know <laughs> 
there's that. It's like, I started thinking that I was like, what if Jesus was just adjusting people's posture, you know, and, you know, they thought that he was touching them and like, no, no, he was actually cracking their back or something, some chiropractor. Thing. I don't know. But anyway, it's just, a, it's a funny thing, but it's been very, very rewarding. I, I've worked with kids, a lot of special needs people. And, um, like I, I'm, the other thing I learned about was fascia. Like that, the big thing was to learn that there's connective tissue. Like we always thought in terms of muscles and bones and ligaments and tendons, but what connects everything? The connective tissue. The connective tissue contains cells. The cells contain fluid. If the fluid becomes dehydrated and it becomes inflamed, like when you see your pants, like that they were too tight. And you say that, oh, that little line there, that's what's happening to the tissue. So if you have some issue with biomechanics or if you sit in a position for too long, if you start to think about the body as pools of water, it starts to make more sense. Mm. So like I, the thing I told the woman this morning was like, what's going to help you the most from what she described, because she said she wakes up in the morning in the most pain. The thing is, the issue is the fascia first which is hydration of that tissue so the first thing that you do is chug 17 ounces of water before you put your feet on the ground it's not as easy to do as you think because you have to plan the night before to leave your 17 ounces of water and most of the day you're sipping water or eating water-based foods but this one time every day if you could chug 17 ounces of water because what i explained to her was we're a stagnant body a pool of water that's just stagnant basically at night not moving for the most part, right? Right. So then you want that body of water to move. That's what the issue is. That's why there's stiffness like that. So anyway, that's that's basically learning that stuff has been, you know, invaluable to me and all the people that I've been able to teach it to. And I mostly teach it in the East Village at Stytown. So you're doing that. And in the background, I see guitars from Hot Rod Guitar. Right. Yeah, I was playing um, for this producer, and uh, he said, you should get that guitar adjusted. So I, I found this guy, Richie Bax, to the uh, New York Times called The Secret Zen Master of Guitar Repair, right near where I worked at the gym. He, uh, he looked at the guitar. We were both like, it was funny, first meeting, because he was grumpy when I called him up, and then I, I used very heavy gauge strings, so it sounds funny. I'm like, I have a 64 Strat with 12 gauge strings. And he's like, what kind of idiot uses 12 gauge strings? <laughs> so, but then he saw me play and he was like, oh wow, this guy can really play with 12 gauge strings. Cause it's hard to bend 12 gauge, but they sound better to me. Anyway, he, he, he found some more things wrong with it than I thought and fixed it for really cheap, like 42 bucks and glued the nut and did all this stuff. And I realized he was great. So I started coming and bringing in, I had about, I don't know if I have like 10 to 15 of my own guitars. And, and so I brought them in. He said, bring them in once a week. We'll do them. I'll come in there and spend some time. Because I like he had a lot of guitars up there. And he's like, do you want to intern? And I was like, intern? I'm too old to intern. And he's like, and I said, I don't know anything about this. And he's like, well, you've been playing guitar for 40 years. So you know more than you think. But I had no skills. Like, I didn't work with screwdrivers or power tools. Never. And, um... Anyway, I started interning, learning a lot of stuff. It was really interesting and having fun and bought a bunch of guitars from him. And then the pandemic hit. And I'd been, well, I bought guitars from him. But one of the things I became good at was acquiring the parts. Like, he taught me what to do. 
and building relationships with pickup winders, which is the electronics of the guitar. It's very odd group of people so but i built some relationships i was also selling for him i was selling a lot of his guitars so i had a lot of things already down i i bought the parts it'd be easy for me to buy my own parts he was he was willing to help me but you have to have the guts to just say i'm gonna go ahead and do it you know mm -hmm. and then he'll help you um i mean he could always build it for you if you get stuck so you know you're really not stuck but you feel like you are because you don't want that i bought the parts i started buying the parts towards you know over the pandemic because i couldn't do anything i started saying i said you know that's it i'm doing it i bought the parts because i was like it's worth it like so what if i make a mistake i make a mistake you know and uh then like what well the other thing was the concepts that i had there were times when Richie would steal my concepts and I, I told him that's great because that's a big compliment. I became his protege because like we could collaborate at times. He definitely gave me concepts, but I, I was giving him concepts. So I knew I had creative ideas that would work too. So then when I, I started building them and then it, like I knew I needed an inventory if I was going to have a company and I needed to practice. So I cranked out guitars. I made like 40 or 50 in a pretty short amount of time. Um, all during the pandemic. This all happened during. Well, the I didn't even buy it. I mean, I didn't start till June 15th because they didn't let it. We were locked down and I could only buy stuff. I didn't go back to working once once in a while with Richie until June 15th. So then I used to come in that because I needed help at the beginning to like learn what to do. But then I from June 15th is when I really started the the business. So it was like. The, I was more like formulating how am I going to build guitars and then starting in June I was like hard hard at it now I'm uh, I'm doing all the terrible things you have to do to launch a business but, but, I mean <laughs> no, I, like I, I still get time to do some building but it's like it's definitely I there's you know there's never enough time for building and it's always that's the fun part you know yeah. And I built enough so that I could take the time to do what I need to do, but it is a it is tough because it's not just the infrastructure, although that's hard. It's not just the digital plan and the e-list, which is hard, but it's also relationships with other people, you know, when you're building a business to scale them and all that. You know, in your life, Dan, I, I've always found it interesting, all of the twists and turns of your life where you leveraged you know, your skill sets that you had and you were willing to face whatever in front of you to learn. I've always, I've always admired that about you because of your willingness to be humble and go, you know what, I don't know this. I don't think I know how to do this, but yeah, sure, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really, it's funny because it's like I was, I was talking to my business advisor and it's like, the things that you're talented at, you, you take for granted, you know, because like it's easy to do that certain things, but it's not easy for other people to do the things that are easy for me to do, you know, but there's so many easy things to do that I can't do. It's so hard for me. You know, it's like, uh, it's always a, uh, a tough, always a tough thing to like, I mean, even now I have a bunch of writing to do. And uh, I'm just, it's hard to like force myself to do it. Mm. And uh, I mean, I will, but it's just, it's hard to get it going. There's 
database stuff, you know, that sort of thing where it's like inventory, things that are like, there's just nothing fun or romantic about them at all, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I've always found business, the tedium of business. So, uh, mm -hmm. but you have to do it and you do, I think you do build the skill sets and one of one of the skill sets I built was learning how to break myself out of the procrastination from right. doing those things that I don't want to do. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I try to do one or two things just so that I can um, not feel bad. Like so that always <laughs> forces me. That always forces me to do something. It's like, well, if I haven't done anything, you know, I'll go write a song. So that I'm like, well, at least I wrote a song, you know. Yeah, I, I completely get that. Yeah. So as we wrap this up, one of my favorite interviewers is James Lipton and the Actors Studio mm -hmm. and his 10 questions. And so this is an homage to him. I'm going to ask you these questions. Okay. Okay. What is your favorite place? Favorite place. It's funny you said that because I just read this Bob Marley thing. And he said, I think it's the quote is my home is in my head, you know? Yeah. So it's a weird thing because it's like, I've never, I, it really is in a weird way. Like the best place is like when I'm fantasizing about music or coming up with ideas or something, you know? What is your least favorite place? I don't like crowds. So it's like anytime, like, it's like, I mean, like, you know, I've spent a lot of times on like the crowded subway and all that stuff. So like when someone says, hey, let's go to a crowded music festival, or like together, it just doesn't sound like a great, uh, let's go relax at a crowded, I mean, it could be cool, you know, if everybody's cool, but it's like, it's hard to guarantee that in a large crowd of, of people. You know, it's like, you know, you would never be like, hey, let's go on the subway and get together. <laughs> Rush hour, let's go. <laughs> Okay, so uh, what about social media turns you on? Uh, well, the connection. I mean, like I hate. There's so many. I mean, I shouldn't. I'm not sure it's the next one. So the, but the thing is that uh, it's just the connection. Like, uh, was it Clubhouse? You mm -hmm. know, and it's like sometimes it's really cool. Like all of a sudden you're talking to some people you wouldn't talk to or just engaging. Like I learned so much from the rap guys about the music business. They knew so much more than I did. You know, everybody else was delusional, but those guys were really, what they said, I, I, I've been saying a lot of that type of stuff, but they were living it. So it was cool to hear that they see what I see and much more. They're, like I said, they're way ahead of me, but it was in, uh, we were in, um, uh, we were connected. Uh, we were connected. We were like, and so the, and that was amazing. I mean, it's not like any like long-term uh, relationship out of it, but it was just like cool to be able to, I mean, the best thing about the social media thing is that like, um, this is what I just learned. What it really is, is it's a chance for people like me to be able to just get like, there's millions and billions of people like that you can sell to all over the world. Like there's a lot of people that like my music. I've never been able to get to them. Thanks to the corporate, you know, uh, masters. Like they're like, well, you don't fit into our program. I don't care about your program. If I can make money on my own without you, then like you go play your game. I'll play mine. I'm doing just fine, you know? So like, I think that there's a lot of people I can get to 
you know, that I haven't been able to so far, but I'm learning about it, you know, whether it's buying a guitar or what, or, or, uh, you know, listening to music that either I, I like or produce or play on, you know? Yeah. Okay. And you, you were right. You anticipated the next one. So what is the thing you like least about social media? Well, the thing is like, it, it, there's an addictive quality to it that like starts to bother me. Like, I got to check my Facebook now. Like, what if there's something on, what if something happened? You know, it's like, there's something like about this. What is, what's going on with virtual Dan? Do I have to, am I getting, I'm, I'm being attacked on the, on the rear. Quick reinforcements. Uh, hey, can someone help me? This guy's attacking me. He said I was a snowflake. God, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, no. I love that. What are your favorite stupid things on the internet? Favorite what? Stupid things. Um, I guess some of the the uh the memes, you know, some of the the like funny, you know, they're kind of like little like stupid things, especially guitar ones, you know. Okay. <laughs> it'll be like how much pay do you get and it'll be the joke behind the joke will be like you never get paid i like to always think about what the joke behind the joke is that's like one of the things about being a writer and so like if the joke behind the joke is musicians don't get paid that's a pretty good that's a pretty that always works <laughs> <laughs> feel safe <laughs> or that who is that bass player like what? yeah always <laughs> always <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so what is your favorite technology? Favorite technology? Well, I guess the recording stuff. I mean, the recording technology, like I reluctantly have gotten on board and it's just been a really, it's changed the creativity. But what happened was this tied into the pandemic too. We couldn't get together, you know, but most of the stuff we have done for years is to a click. I mean, I am a rebel and sometimes we'll go in the, you're going to play to real drums. Yeah. What the hell? But you can't, when you play to a click, you can copy and paste things just like you would in your, you know, so uh, we use a drum loop. You put the drum loop on and then they can change the drums. The drummer can play, replay it. So I just sit in my room and play stuff. And so then I could, the, the thing that's interesting is it skips a lot of steps because when I'm playing live with the band in the studio, we've got to get certain sounds and you hope for the best. But when I'm sitting here just working on my guitar sound and I'm getting a quirky little, I'm like, that could be real cool because that's what makes great records, you know? So you're working on little parts and I have endless time. I can come back anytime, day, night, or, you know, there's endless tracks, it's free. You know, I just, it's so easy to set a, a guitar mic. You just set a mic in front of the speaker. That's a good sound. And um, so like, it's been, that's been, uh, again, I had to learn it and uh, also had to learn to, how to work with a team because there's some work that you could do that you don't need to do if somebody else is doing it, but you do need to play the guitar and they need the guy that plays the bass and the guy that play that, you know, and most importantly, always the singer, you know. So the next question is, is what is your least favorite technology that you have to use? The worst thing is like for work, there's like 10 different apps I've got to use. Like some things are like MindBody, which is like this database that all yoga teachers and all that use. 
And then we have a crew dat thing, which is like, that's so we can talk to the other members of the crew. And the, 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 and like, then you've got, uh, then there's, a, then you have the the software for the gym, Sty Fitness stuff. So there's three or four, without even getting into text and emails. And like, if you're not on some of that stuff, like, and also one of the people I work for uses WhatsApp. So that's going too. So now I've got 10 different apps and I really, you know, it's very, it's like, you know, they're like, oh, and they're always like, it's no problem. The work people are always like, it's no problem. We just have, now we're going to use crew, download it, you know, oh, okay, no problem. I'll download that to my own device, you know, <laughs> and if my phone goes bad, like the end of the world, it's the end of the world, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. What was harder, trying something new or doing something you didn't enjoy? Doing something I didn't enjoy. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not a good person for that. I mean, I, I just don't have the patience for it. I, you know, I'll try to make it interesting, but like, it's always been the thing. I just, it's like vibrations. Like I've been able to do the training with people because it, 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 the, it vibrates with you, you know, it's mm -hmm. something about it, just like playing music. But this, it doesn't, you know, if it's like, if it feels like, it feels almost like it's making you sick, you know? Yeah. It's hard to do those jobs. Yeah, I agree with you. Man, I agree with you on that. So what one item would you take to the deserted island? Well, I mean, I guess you got to take it. It's either, it's either my guitar or my blankie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if, I, if I could get three items, maybe my bear. <laughs> okay, this is the last one. When you're old, what are you going to look back on with extreme fondness? Well, I am old. <laughs> no, see, no. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I mean, I am, I look back on the, 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 the amazing thing is I've been able to work with like all my idols. Like it's a crazy thing. Like I never, I mean, you're just a person listening to the records when you're a kid, like now it's, it's already happened. So you can, you know, it's like I played with all those people. I didn't even realize it at the time. I mean, I, I worked with the Billy Joel band when I was like 15 years old and I didn't even register that I really did it till I saw the pictures and I was like, oh shit, that's right. Um, but like, it's just, yeah. And like, and it wasn't just them. It was the engineer was this Grammy award winning uh, producer for Steely Dan, Elliot Shiner. So it was just like, just, you know, but before that Jack Guilford, you know what I mean? or Edward Albee after that, or John Barth, and, you know, and I just, uh, Carol Kay, you know, just get on stage with Neil Young and like, you know, Willie invites us on for the uh, encore, um, you know, Amazing Grace and Will the, May the Circle Be Unbroken. So I guess looking back on all that stuff, looking back, it's kind of like the uh, Jackson Brown uh, running on empty, you know? Yeah, you know? to me, Dan, it seems like one common thread through your life that's been important is the communities in which you've been able to engage and recognizing the, um, the value of, of those people, whether it was recognized, you know, in via celebrity or it, the people that you're working with now physically 
and, and recognizing their value. And I, I think that that's a really amazing aspect of who you are and how you've lived your life so far. And by the way, old is always 15 years older than wherever you're at. That's a good point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> New rule. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, you, you know, you try to do what makes you feel good. And, uh, and sometimes that's, that's worked out to be helping some people and you hope that those vibrations reverberate, you know, mm. but, but it is, uh, it is fun to reflect on sometimes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, you can follow me on Instagram at Pivots and Potholes and on Twitter at Pivots Potholes. Thanks again.